Hi there, and welcome to the Houghton Baptist Podcast. Today's special guest, Don Curry, will be taking a look at the book of Genesis, the covenant, and the rainbow. Ought to be interesting. Afterwards, check out our website, HoughtonBaptist.org. Tons of information there about our church, things going on, schedules, classes, and such. If it's been a while since you've been to church, or you just want to check out Houghton Baptist Church, come and take a look Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Be there. Come as you are. We do. Stains and all. Enjoy the podcast, and have a great day. Awesome! What God is doing in our church. Uh, I mean, uh, this just this summer alone, twenty-one people have been baptized. I've, I've been here a long time, and uh, I've never seen this many people getting baptized and saved. And um, you know, this kind of kingdom growth uh, brings with it many changes, and sometimes changes are not easily. Um, adjusted to, especially by someone my age, but I am so happy with our church because I just wanted to say this, one soul being saved for all eternity trumps any adjustments I might have to make, and so I hope everyone will join with me in embracing change uh, for the sake of a wonderful and awesome gospel. Okay. Um, I have good news this morning. God is pleased with you. I don't clear my throat when I say that. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, I can tell you that with confidence. You say, well, you don't know what a mess my life is. or I struggle with this sin or that one. Uh, no exceptions. God is pleased with you, and I will substantiate that as we get into today's message. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about uh, the uh, universal flood and Noah. Uh, this is such an amazing story when viewed as the real history that it is. It, it is real history. Uh, if you can't trust the first book in God's Word, how are you going to have confidence in the other 65 books? But you can't talk about Noah and the ark and the flood story without mentioning uh, its corollary, uh, the rainbow covenant, the promise that God gave after the flood. And that's what I'm going to be speaking on this morning. Um, As a sign of that promise, God gave us the rainbow, which in picture form is the new covenant, or by another name is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation has always been by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. And that is why it also goes by the name the Everlasting Covenant. Uh, I would remind you once again, though, we're not going to study the rainbow to become historians or scientists who can explain how a raindrop reflects, reflects, I can't say the reflects, reflects, refracts light into the seven primary colors. We're studying to know the Lord, and that should always be your objective. So this morning, we're going to study the the Rainbow Covenant story 
to know Jesus better. That's always the object whenever you hear me speaking. Um, this whole story of Noah and the flood has more layers than an onion. And uh, you've really got to narrow your scope if you've only got a half an hour or so. Uh, but I would encourage you to get into a study. There's so many facets in there. Uh, I think first and foremost is the ark as a picture of Christ. I, I did a message on that quite some time ago. But if you've ever struggled with the security of your salvation, that study will put your mind at rest and will ground you thoroughly. So... Um, if that piques your interest, then I would invite you to join my class starting next week <laughs> when I'm going to be teaching the book of Genesis, and we won't be limited to uh, a narrow scope. We'll take it all in. So all you need to bring is uh, a desire to know the Lord better. It's um, men, women, any age. Uh, they'll be downstairs and start at 9 o'clock sharp. Um, in my previous message, uh, not long ago, I spoke on why God sent the flood. And we learned that the, the flood taught us that God has to judge sin. And that the flood looked forward to the cross. It was sort of a dress rehearsal for what was to take place at the cross. So that was yet a long way uh, in the future at that time. Um, and you once again, you've heard me say this before, God has inspired His Word in pictures. I mention that because the ark, as a picture, it taught us about Christ, it taught us about salvation, past, present, and future. But now, as a picture, the ark can take us no further. Um, the ark has come to rest on Mount Ararat after the flood, and God has at last commands Noah to leave the ark. So, maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, if the ark pictures Christ, is Noah leaving Jesus? <laughs> and uh, the answer is no, the ark is only a picture of Christ. You see, every analogy breaks down at some point. Uh, no one picture can tell the whole story. Jesus is, um, he's too big, he's too wonderful, he's infinite. And so that's why the Bible is full of pictures to teach us more about Jesus so Noah leaves the ark, picture of Christ, to enter into life under the rainbow, bigger picture of Christ. It's all still Christ all along. The, uh, the entire flood account is in Genesis chapter 6 to 9. But we're going to um, just read two passages now in, in chapters 8 and 9. So if you would turn to chapter 8, verse 15. Genesis 8.15. I have to take the time to screw the lid on. My wife says I've been known to spill things <laughs> more than once. Okay, Genesis 8.15, we're going to go through 22. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, 
and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And now, if you'll bear with me, I know this is a long passage, but I want to get the whole story in front of you. If you flip over to the next chapter, Genesis 9, and we're going to pick up at verse 8 and go through 16. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh." When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Um, God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. But God's dealings with man can and does change, and that's what we're seeing here Uh, And now for the first time, uh, at least for the first time in this proportion, God here, after the flood, has assumed a new posture to deal with man in grace and mercy and not judgment. And he's promised to maintain this new posture as long as the earth remains. And the rainbow was given as a sign of that promise, of that covenant. Well, it's wonderful to know that God is never going to send another universal flood, but the promise is a lot bigger than that. Uh, The flood was a picture of universal judgment. It was real for certain, but it pictured universal judgment. Uh, What's such a big deal about this is that God is promising never to send a universal judgment of any kind upon man. And remember, uh, the reason God must judge sin universally is because man fell into sin universally in Adam. Um, Now, the flood was only a picture of universal judgment. The reality that it pictured took place many years afterwards at the cross. Uh, In other words, man's sin in reality was not judged by the flood. Well, this begs a question then. So if man's sin was not in reality judged by the flood, then how can God 
make a promise never again to send another universal judgment upon mankind. I mean, if the flood taught us anything, it was that God must judge sin. The answer is this. There would be another universal judgment of sin after the flood. But that universal judgment of sin would not be poured out upon man. Rather, it would be poured out on the Son of Man, Christ on the cross. That's how God could make this wonderful promise. And even though the flood was only a picture of what was to take place at the cross, as a continuation of this illustration, after the flood, we actually see God begin to deal with man in a new way in grace and mercy. But it's important to realize that this new dispensation of grace following the flood is based on and looks forward to the shed blood of Christ on the cross. All of history and mankind revolves around the cross. Uh, the flood story, as I said, is, takes place in chapters 6 to 9, and it's great just to read through that in one setting, but don't read too fast or you might miss a very important and precious truth. There's a dilemma and a paradox here. Read, myth, <clears throat> read with me, if you would. Uh, turn back to uh, the beginning of this story in chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and I'm just going to read 5 to 7. Uh, here we are before the flood. Then God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then Lord, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now flip back to chapter 8, and let's look at verse 21 again. Here we are after the flood. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Did you get that? Chapter 6, God says, I will destroy all flesh. Reason, man is evil. Chapter 8, God says, I will never again destroy all flesh. Reason, man is evil. <laughs> Did you? I don't know if you ever picked that up before. I go, wait a minute, God, you already used that reason once. You, you logic says you can't use the same um, argument to justify opposing actions. So what in the world changed between chapter 6 and chapter 8 to explain this? I mean, why do we see an angry God of judgment in chapter 6? and a happy God favorably disposed toward man in chapter 8. Well, it wasn't the flood. Uh, don't think the flood worked. Uh, sin has been dealt with. Well, you only have to finish reading chapter 9 to see that uh, sin has not been eradicated. Sadly, Noah and his family get into sin in short order. The flood did nothing to change man. All the terrors of a universal flood, and man didn't change one drop. Man was as evil as ever. 
Noah deserved a flood as soon as he stepped off the ark as far as deserving goes. And we all deserve a flood as far as merit is concerned. Remember, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it tells us Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You see, Noah did not have a righteousness of his own. He had the righteousness of Christ, which is by faith, which is the only way I have any righteousness, and the only way you have righteousness as well. Uh, see, Noah, as I said, salvation by grace through faith is has always been. Um, okay, so it wasn't the flood. So again, what in the world changed between chapter 6 and chapter 8 to explain this, this paradox? What moved God from from uh, angry to happy. Well, let's look what transpired between the time that Noah stepped off the ark and God's promise of grace. Um, I think Noah came out of that ark uh, not proud and self-righteous, but uh, humbled and profoundly thankful that that he and his family had been set once again upon a, a new and cleansed earth and, and knowing that they owed it all to the ark and to God's revelation to Noah of the ark. And it's so powerful to read this that the first thing that Noah thought to do when he stepped off the ark was not to scout out his position or prepare a meal or build a house or to make a list. That's what I would have done, made a list. I'm a list maker. Um, Chapter 8, verse 20 tells us, Noah built an altar. That was the first thing he did. He expressed his gratitude by building an altar and making sacrifices. And the record tells us that Noah sacrificed one of every clean animal. The idea of the clean animal sacrifice is simply based on what, um, <clears throat> what an acceptable sacrifice to God was. And God sets those rules, not man. And you remember, God drew all the unclean animals into the ark by twos, but he drew in the clean animals by sevens. So evidently, three pairs and an extra, and it was probably that extra that Noah sacrificed. That was a lot of animals. And the Bible tells us that when that so- the soothing aroma of that animal sacrifice reached God, that was when God changed his disposition toward man. That was when God changed from an angry judge to a gracious and merciful father. And that was when God vowed. He made an oath. He promised. He swore to have an in, <clears throat> irreversible dispensation of grace toward man as long as the earth shall remain. And that was when God gave the rainbow as a sign, and that's what changed between chapter 6 and chapter 8. It was because of the sacrifice, and it always is. Well, what was it about that soothing aroma that caused such a change in God? I mean, this is aromatherapy in high gear. (laughs) Well... The Hebrew word translated soothing aroma is actually a play on the name Noah. And it literally means savor of Noah. And that, that needs a little explanation. Uh, now, you know, I've been on a Navy steamship when the uh, boilers were having problems and they were going through 
large amounts of fresh water and not leaving enough fresh water for the crew to take showers. And in short order, there's a savor of sailor all over the ship, and it's not a good one. And remember, Noah and his family were on that ark for over a year. You know, eight people in a zoo. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure this Noah must have not had a favor that was, uh, I'm sorry, a savor that was very good either. So, so what was it about this savor of Noah that made such a change in God? Well, the answer is not what, what Noah actually smelled like. It had to do with rest. Uh, all through this story, we see this theme of rest, and ultimately, we're talking about rest in the finished work of Christ. Uh, the uh, the no, name Noah means rest. His father Lamech named him rest. Um, and when God told Noah to build the ark, he said, build it with rooms. But the Hebrew word in that passage for rooms is nests. Uh, you know, a nest carries the idea of a place to rest. Uh, the raven was restless. The dove couldn't find a place for her feet to rest. And you remember, the ark didn't crash into Mount Ararat. It rested. And now for a final time, we see this idea of rest again in this play on the name Noah. Uh, other translations of soothing aroma there in verse 21 are a rest-inducing odor. The one I like the best, an aroma of rest. So... Why did God smell the sacrifice and then go to rest? It's because he was happy with the sacrifice. See, that, that's an Old Testament way of saying God is happy with Jesus. Um, you see, that altar was a picture of the cross. And all those clean animal sacrifices pictured Christ on the cross. Christ, the Lamb of God, was a sacrifice acceptable to God. And so in this story, it's saying, when the smell of all the pictured Jesus reached God, God went to rest. Okay, why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because when God was not at rest, he was angry and acting as a judge. When he was not at rest, he was full of wrath. I like the way Dr. Tony Evans stated this. He said, sin has wrath built into it. Um, and Jesus bearing our sins to the cross completely, absolutely, utterly, and totally satisfied the wrath of God. Uh, I don't think, well, is God such a, an awful, why does, he just, why does he have to get so mad about it? Well, God is infinite. In all of his attributes, he's infinitely holy and he's infinitely just. And if he did not react to sin with wrath, he would be not totally holy or just. But his infinite love drove Christ to the cross to solve this dilemma. And Christ's sacrifice, his blood on the cross, totally satisfied the wrath of God. And so now we see God resting because he's not wrathful anymore. He's no longer our judge. Rather, he's our friend and our father. That's what's being pictured here. And remember, it's all because of the sacrifice. Because of the sacrifice, that which was a reason for judgment now becomes an argument for mercy. Isn't that amazing? Um, 
And that is why God assumes this new posture toward man, henceforth the deal in grace. It was because of the sacrifice. And even though this account following the flood only pictured the reality that was to take, come to pass at the cross uh, as a part of this great picture and a continuation of it, God actually does begin to deal with man in grace and mercy following the flood. Uh, an illustration of that is found in, I'll just read it, in Isaiah 54, verses 9 and 10. It reads, uh, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the, <clears throat> the Lord who has compassion on you. God promises to be faithful to this new disposition, this new dispensation of grace, and this promise is a completely unconditional promise. It doesn't depend on who man is or what man does. So as an illustration of God's undying faithfulness to deal with man in grace and mercy, he gives us these proofs, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. The promise that the days and the seasons would go on is a, a perpetual picture of God's forbearance of mercy and grace in keeping his vow. Uh, in, there in 8.22 says, they shall not cease. You can count on it. Do you think you've sinned that one particular sin one time too many and God's grace has been exhausted and you have no hope now? I've sung from that hymn. Uh, even if you've sinned that sin again and again and again and again and again and again and again, let me ask you this. Did the sun come up this morning? Did spring follow winter this year? Took his time, but it did, but did, did spring follow winter? Then that is proof that God is still dealing with you in grace and not as your judge. Now, I'm not saying man has a license to sin, but when you look to Jesus, uh, that grace will never run out as long as the earth shall remain. Technical problem. Amen. Um, and if that's not enough to give you assurance, God gives us the rainbow as a sign of his promise, never again to send another universal judgment, but rather to be faithful in his posture to deal with man in grace. Now, indeed, the rainbow, it is a rainbow that serves as a sign of this promise. But notice, if you will, in chapter 9, in verses 13, 14, and 16, the King James reads, bow, not rainbow. Uh, the New Living Translation does actually read rainbow, but the Hebrew word here is kisheth. And in every instance in the Old Testament, kisheth refers to a battle bow, as in bow and arrow. What did I put Here we go. This, not the thing with seven colors. Uh, and with arrows too, in the as it's used in the Old Testament, um, and 
the bow and arrow was a symbol of justice and hostility and anger and God's judgment throughout the Old Testament. Like There's many examples of this. Psalm 18.14 says, He sent out his arrows and scattered them and flashes in abundance and routed them. Uh, but don't miss the real beauty of the rainbow. It's not the colors. The real beauty of the rainbow is this. God has hung up his weapon. That's the point. God has hung up his weapon for good. And he set the bow in the sky. And there are no arrows. Use your sanctified imagination that it's hanging there. God can levitate things. I can't. He set his bow in the sky and there are no arrows. And if you look at the direction of the rainbow... If there were any arrows, they've been expended in the direction of God himself. There are none. That's why the bow is such a perfect sign. Axel, would you throw that up there for me? There we go. Good. Um, That's why this is such a perfect sign, because that which was a symbol of destruction and judgment has now become a beautiful symbol of mercy and grace. You see why God picked that? Isn't that amazing? Um, God is no longer an enemy. God is no longer against us. God says, I promise you, I'm happy with the blood of the sacrifice. And even though you're wicked, even though you are provoking me every day, even though you deserve a flood, I promise you, as long as the earth shall last, that I will only deal with you in grace and in love. And to prove it, I hang up my weapon, and he hung up his weapon in the sky for good. Um, Genesis 9.16, if you look at that, it says, When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Uh, that bow was more for even more for God than it was for man. The Bible doesn't say when you see the rainbow, remember. The Bible says when God sees the rainbow, God remembers. Uh, God saying, "I've hung up my weapon, and I will never forget my grace." And I'm so glad it reads that way because I'm prone to forget, especially when it comes to the grace of God. I forget that God is good and gracious. And you forget that even though you sin again and again and again and again and again and again and again, that he keeps taking you back. I forget that, but God doesn't forget. He looks at the rainbow and remembers. Uh, I forget many things about the new covenant, but God does not forget anything about the new covenant. So what does it mean to live life under the rainbow? It just means to live in the grace of God. It means to know that God is happy with Jesus. That's why in my opening remarks I said, God is pleased with you. It's because God is pleased with Jesus in in his sacrifice for your sin and and mine. Uh, And if you're a believer, you're in Christ. You see, we make being pleasing to God a starting point, I mean an end point, 
God intended it to be a starting point in our relationship with Him. So quit trying to be pleasing to God and take it by faith. God has already made you pleasing to Him in Christ. And when you start living in that truth, then you'll begin to experience the holiness that you strove for in your own strength, but never seem to achieve. Life under the rainbow simply means that God is ever moving in my life and in yours to conform us to Christ. That's where we're going with this. It's freedom from condemnation. It means I'm not afraid of God's judgment anymore. In Genesis, we have this truth in the seed form. In Romans, we find it again in a fully developed form. Romans 8.1, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Therefore, there is... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the new covenant. The source is God. Its nature is everlasting. And its object is you, me, sinful man. And its foundation is the sacrifice, the precious blood of Jesus. And even to this day, uh, the rainbow evokes surprise and wonder and awe. And you never want to see it alone. So this week, go tell somebody about Jesus. Hey, thanks for listening to the Houghton Baptist Podcast. We appreciate your support. And speaking of support, there's a lot of different ways you can support Houghton Baptist in addition to the traditional way of giving your tithe or check at church. We have online giving on our website at HoughtonBaptist.org. And we also have text giving. If you're interested in text giving, just dial 906-346-1317 and follow the information from there. Easy peasy. If you're looking for a church or you're just not sure what church is all about, why don't you stop by Houghton Baptist Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Be there. Come as you are. We do. Have a great day.